Well, good morning to you all. Looks like the weather is kind of taking a turn for the worst. We can say goodbye to fall and summer for the next few months. Okay, we're going to be in Luke 1, 39 through 45. We're going to start with that. Luke 1, 39. It says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now, the passage before, if you were here last Sunday, Mary gets the good news about she's going to have the Messiah. She's going to have a baby. Uh, so this is what she does, her responses. She, it says, the Bible says she went with haste. Mary's excited. She is on fire for the Lord. I mapped out the, uh, obviously I didn't go there, but I mapped out Nazareth to the hill country of Judah. And it's anywhere between 55 and 70 miles. It's a pretty long trip for a young, uh, young woman to go by herself. But let's put this in perspective. She's, she's going on a trip. It's not like she puts her shades on, packs her duffel bag, throws it in the BMW, and zoom, 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 down the Jericho Turnpike. You'll find that funny if you're from New York. (laughs) But if if you really think about it, the way she got down there is either by foot or by donkey. It was a long trip. It could have taken up to a week's journey with a lot of perils. So, oh, that the Christians would be that excited to serve the Lord. Oh, that we would be so filled and overflowing that we can't sit still. You know, I I do see that excitement here. We're like a family here. People are actually happy. There's a lot of smiles. You know, you're not all falling asleep on me. But people want to come to church. They want to hear the word of God. Somebody said to me, what is it about the Calvaries that they grow? And I said, it's very simple. It's a simple equation. It's not about who we are as people. It's about going through the Bible verse by verse. People are inherently, they're innately attracted to God's word. It doesn't matter who's up here. There are people who are attracted to the word of God. So I just pray that we never lose that excitement. And in verse 41, there's a situation where the babe leaps in her womb. Now, this is John the Baptist, and he's in the womb of Elizabeth. And Mary's greeting causes him to to jump up, to leap somehow, move around in there. You ever heard of that term quickening? Any of you families raising kids? uh, It's when the baby moves. It's a stage in the development where the baby starts to move and Mom gets excited. Dad puts his hand on her belly. It's a pretty neat stage. I remember when my wife was pregnant with my son, and I would work, you know, the afternoon shift. So I would come come home at 11, 11:30, and my my wife would wake up, wake up. She would wait up for me. And I, when I would walk in the house, my my greeting, my voice, maybe the deepness of my voice. Every time I did that, I would come home. My wife would say, "He moved." It's like he got accustomed to my voice. Like daddy's home. But here, it's something even more amazing because this, this goes beyond natural means. This goes beyond the physical realm here. Again, Elizabeth and John had no way of knowing the good news by natural means. All it took was Mary's greeting to cause that response from the baby. 
Obviously, the Bible tells us that this knowledge of the whole picture of the Messiah comes from the Holy Spirit. It's, it's pointed out very specifically. We read before that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And here we also find that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? What about the, the Holy Spirit has a lot of roles. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, it's one verse. I'll read it for you. It says this. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Now, that's very important. The Holy Spirit, again, has a lot of roles. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to teach, is to show us things. And it's very important to understand who the Holy Spirit is. When we go through more of the scripture, we're going to learn more about the third person of the Godhead. And there's always a personal pronoun used with the Holy Spirit. The Bible never says, when speaking about the Holy Spirit, it. The Bible says he. He's a person. And arguably, the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood person of the Godhead. And, and some groups teach that the Holy Spirit is like electricity or God's active force. But that's not true, as we'll find out as we, as we read further. And in verse 42, he says, Then she spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So, again, Elizabeth has no natural means to, to know the full gravity of the baby. But the Holy Spirit is explaining it to her. And Elizabeth says the word blessed. In the Greek, the word is eulogia, which is where our, we get our word eulogy from. And that word literally means, in translating the English, is to be well spoken of. And it says that she is spoken of among women, not above women. And we're going to read about how that's important. So in the meaning is like, look what God has done in her life. She's well spoken of because of the fruit of her womb. It's a cause for celebration. The savior of the world is in her womb. That's why she's well spoken of. This whole thing about insight that we gain from the Holy Spirit as believers is interesting. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit dwells within inside of us. But the question is, do we always take advantage of this relationship? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is no. Did you ever do something where you, the Holy Spirit is warning you, don't do it, or don't say it, and you say it or you do it? Come on, like I'm the only one who's done that. <laughs> and then afterwards, you, you kind of realize that was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. I shouldn't have done that or said that. And you have to make good on it. I remember an instance... Uh, I like when I do something bad as a Christian, I like to say it was 10 years ago, but it was about five years ago, maybe a little bit more. I was uh, working with uh, some other officers on a, a case or a project, and uh, it wasn't a big deal, but I was working with an older officer on my squad. And later he didn't he felt that he didn't like the way I handled it. And he called me a hypocrite. Now, as a Christian, you can curse at us, you can spit on us. But once you say the H word, we get indignant. <laughs> what? Hypocrite. So we had a little bit of an argument, and then somewhere down the road, we patched things up. Because you've got to work with these people. They're on your squad. They could, you know, could be a life-and-death situation. But over time, the Holy Spirit said to me, look, I told you the first time not to do it. Now I'm telling you to go to him and apologize. So I did go to him, and we spoke. And I said, remember that incident? And he said, ah, oh, no, forget it. It's okay. I said, no, it's not okay. I said, I'm a Christian, and I was being a hypocrite, and I apologize. Now, fast forward five years to today. He took the sergeant's test. He's now my supervisor. <laughs> Pretty amazing, isn't it? But the good news is that that apology and that explanation of my actions went a long way with him. 
He, he, he is so happy for me that I'm a pastor. He actually took a Bible from me and he's starting to read the book of James. Yeah. But, again, we have to be able to let the Holy Spirit speak to us, even when we do something stupid, for the Holy Spirit to come later and say, listen, I'm going to, now I'm going to make it right for you. If you follow what I'm saying, I'll cover it. You know? But... For some of us, it is hard to say, I'm sorry. I think by nature, it goes against our flesh. And, uh, you know, a marriage is a, is a succession, a series of saying, I'm sorry, reconciling, <laughs> having an argument, saying, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it's, and there's a lot of good stuff in between. But, but saying, I'm sorry, is very important, especially in a marriage relationship. And some of you may be convicted right now as I'm speaking and hope that I turn the page and go to something else. But we have to say I'm sorry and we have to mean it. Apologies are very important because an apology is like a confession. You're confessing that you did something wrong and you're trying to reconcile with your spouse. If you don't know how to say you're sorry in a marriage, that's a marriage that's going to be a problem somewhere probably shortly down the road. And even in ministry, apologies. Sometimes in ministry we feel that as we start to rise through the hierarchy, so to speak, that we have to put on this facade of that we're perfect. And the cool thing is about the Calvary Chapel system is I've seen a lot of humble pastors, and they're just regular guys. But in ministry, it's also very important to say, I'm sorry, because we're still going to make mistakes. And we can't get to the point that we're so high on ourselves that uh, people don't want to approach us anymore. We become unapproachable. That's, that's, that's just wrong. In verse 43, it says, Elizabeth says, But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She makes a statement here, and really, another gift of the Holy Spirit she's got is prophetic utterances. She's really prophesying about the, the full magnitude of that baby's role. And, and she's actually humbling herself and saying, look at me compared to the, the child in your womb. Why, why are you coming to me? So the whole thing is, is lit up for her. The whole big picture is she understood before the baby's even born. And 44, again, all it took was a simple from Mary's voice, hello, or greetings, Elizabeth. And as we saw last Sunday, again, John was filled from the womb. 45. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Blessed. Different word than the first word used. Uh, word is makaria in the Greek, which means how happy, fortunate. Now, it's a common theme here of happiness and fortune in believing God's promises prior to fulfillment. Now, if you look at the times, certainly where Mary was living, there was nothing terribly happy to look forward to. They were under the Roman domination. There was oppression. There was prejudice. And also, to look to the religious leaders was not good because they were corrupt and the people knew it. Uh, and there was, there was a big rift between the religious leaders and the common people. So there's nothing to look forward to. I even look at it in our society. During the holiday seasons, there's a, a thin veneer of joy. But under that, take a ride with me uh, on my job and see what happens as Christmas time approaches. I'll tell you what goes up. Attempted suicides, suicide, robberies, scams, drug overdoses, drunk driving. Do I need to say any more? That's what happens. That's what we face as police in the holiday season. It could be a very depressing time. But I can still maintain joy. I'll still come up here and smile because I have the Lord in my life. And... The Lord has given me the abilities to look over those things. And actually, you can turn it around. You know, let God use you to turn things around. Somebody has quoted the term sphere of influence. People in your sphere of influence. At holiday times, you wouldn't believe what people ask me to do. 
while we're in briefings, the, the supervisor will say, tell us something about the Bible. You know, what does the Lord say about today? Or if I go to a place and people are depressed, they're open to prayer. Don't let the ACLU get a hold of the CD. I'll definitely be leaving the floor sooner than I thought. <laughs> but it, it's, all about, it's all about believing and having hope and trusting in God and his goodness in spite of our circumstances. Okay, so as we continue through Luke 1, there's a little bit written about Mary, not a whole lot. But unfortunately, there's a lot of misconceptions that swirl around her. Mary's a victim. She's a victim of overemphasis, people elevating her to the point of godhood, and underemphasis. Other groups look at her like, eh, she's just married. They dismiss her. And that's not fair. Either one of those characteristics are not fair to Mary. That's not the true nature of who she is. In 1854, Pope Pius IX proclaimed the Immaculate Conception. Most people don't know what that is. I used to think immaculate means clean, conception is conception, must be Jesus. But that's not what that means. The the proclamation of the Immaculate Conception, proclaimed 1,800 or so years after her death, says that Mary was born without original sin. Pope Pius XII in 1950 proclaimed Mary didn't die, but she was taken bodily into heaven. That's known as the Assumption of Mary. And, of course, in recent times, petitions have been enacted to proclaim as her as a co-redemptrix or elevate her to the, to the length of the, to the status of the godhood. Well, let's see if this fits with the word of God. You know, it's worth taking a look at. Let's see what Mary says about herself. We're going to read verses 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months, and then returned to her house. So, the first, let's look at the elements of this prayer. The first uh, line, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. In the Latin, it's magnificat animea mea dominum. What that means is, my soul magnifies the Lord. Okay. But the first part, magnificat. And I'm saying that because uh, most of you have heard of Mary's Magnificat. What, what that word means is her magnification, her magnification of the Lord. So even people who say it's Mary's Magnificat are telling you just by the title, she's magnifying the Lord. The, the word for soul in the Greek is psyche, which means our mind, our self, our personality, who makes us who we are. My mind, she says, and everything else that I am exalts the Lord. We have to ask the question to ourselves, does everything about us exalt the Lord? Our speech, not here. I don't expect when everybody is done and we talk that people are going to start using profanity in the hallway. I just don't see it happening. But how is our speech when we're not here? How do we treat our coworkers? How do we treat our subordinates? Do we listen to our supervisors at work? These are a lot of questions. Is everything that we are, who we are, the same in church as it is in the outside? That's the question to ask ourselves. Sadly enough, you know, how do we treat our spouses? 
How do we treat our kids? Do we provoke them to wrath? Do we love our spouses? Sadly enough, a lot of Christians lead a double life. They're one way in church and in front of the brethren, and they're another way when they're not. As if God doesn't seize. God doesn't see. How tragic is that? God sees everything. Let's continue on. Verse 47, she says, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She moves now from her mind to her spirit. Spirit is that part of us that is either joined to God or eternally separated from him. It's the part of us that causes a hunger and thirst for God. It causes us to seek after him. This is the void. There's a void in in our hearts that we erroneously try to fill with drugs, alcohol, sex, looks, success. You put the blanks in there. Fill in the blanks. We try to fill it, but it's erroneous. It, It doesn't, it won't work. The more we have, the more we're going to want. The only way that our hearts can be satisfied is with a relation to our God and Savior. It's the relationship through the cross, through Jesus Christ. So Mary here exalts God and her spirit is rejoicing in God, her Savior. Now, why would Mary need a Savior? What does a Savior do? A Savior saves us from something tragic, terrible, even death. Uh, in, In the Old Testament, through Isaiah, the Father says that he's the Savior. Jesus also, we know through scriptures, is the Savior. So what are we being saved from? The answer is, and it's not very popular today, you know, pulpits all around, you know, they want members to come in and they want people to feel good. So they'll omit words like the blood of Christ, sin, hell. Well, I'm here to tell you, I hate to dampen your mood. There is sin and there is hell. And if we don't believe in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that God has given us through his son, through the cross, we're going to hell. It's that simple, you know, and that's just the way it is. So I said it. Uh, And then for the other part is Mary accepted, she understood what we all need to accept, that she and we are sinners in need of a Savior. She said it herself. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 said, there is none righteous, no, not one. Mary is overjoyed, though, that God has provided a Savior for her. And quite frankly, so am I, and so should you be. Verse 48 She says, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. So with her mind, she exalts God with her spirit. She is overjoyed about her savior. And with her body, she's a maidservant. She's put herself in a position as a servant, as a slave girl to God, like we we spoke of before. Uh, Jesus said the humble will be exalted and the proud will be abased. And Mary knows all generations henceforth will call her, call her blessed because of God, how God rewarded her humility. And verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God is so awesome, and we are individually so insignificant. But my God is a personal God, and he's intimately acquainted with me. And Mary is aware of this. She, right now in her, her prayer, it's just her and the Lord. She, the whole world kind of just fades away. And right now Mary is at the feet of her God, her creator, her father. And she is just having sweet fellowship with him. Do you have a personal relationship with him, with God? You can. I'll tell you another story, kind of interesting story. Uh, one time, one day, my, my wife asked me, she was doing a project for the... <laughs> For the kids, uh, she was making cupcakes, and she ran out of these cupcake holders, the little silver individual things. 
So, of course, she sends me to the store, and I can't find anything, but she sends me to the store for that and two other things. I got the two other things. I couldn't find the cupcake holder, so I figured two out of three isn't bad. So, so I call her up, and she's like, you got to get the cupcake holders. I gave you the box top. You should be able to find them. I got the first box yesterday. So I get one of the people, one of the workers there to help me. And we're looking up and down, high and low, through aisle six of Stop and Shop. And we can't find these things, right? She gets somebody else. They can't find it. So I'm like, I'm getting frustrated now. I just want to go home. I don't want to be in the store anymore. <laughs> so as I'm walking out the store, I feel God say to me, just go back and get. They're right there. They'll be right at the edge of the shelf. And I'm thinking, that's got to be me. Why does God care about cupcake holders? <laughs> uh, there's, there's the war in the Middle East, and there's the tsunami, and hurricanes, and God's telling me to go get cupcake holders. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, if I ever shared this with anybody, they think I'm crazy. Now it's on CD. <laughs> so I'm arguing with the Lord in aisle six of the stupid store, and I'm saying, no way. This is, it's me. It's got to be me. So the Lord is very strong about it. He goes, go back. So I go back. I said, okay, Lord, but I'm going to walk real fast, and I'm just going to, if I don't see him, I'm just leaving. <laughs> so we came to an agreement. So as I'm walking down the aisle, you, wouldn't you believe it? The stupid things were right at the edge. <laughs> well, why do I tell you this story? Well, to tell you, number one, Mary knew that God is a personal God to her. I know that God is a personal God to me. God cares about the big things in my life, my career choices, my son's health, my marriage. But you know what? He also cares about the little things in my life. And that, and that is so true. The cupcake holders, you know, it's... I, I got to tell you that I have intimate fellowship with my God. Like Mary, I can sit uh, and speak to God, and it's just me and him. The whole world can fade away, and it's just a personal relationship with me and him. And everybody here can have that assurance. Verse 50, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. What about this word fear? There's a lot of misconceptions. Oh, you Christians, you tremble before the Lord. He's always ready to stomp on you if you do something wrong. What about this word fear and, and our relationship to God? Well, I looked up the word fear in the dictionary. Three definitions that I came found is one, it's a ground for occasion of alarm or danger. Two, a painful emotion marked by alarm, dread, or disquiet. And three, awe, profound reverence, especially for the supreme being. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. Because the Bible says in Hebrews that we can boldly come before the throne of grace. We can boldly in our prayers come before God's throne room and ask for mercy, you know, in the time that we need it and grace. So we, our fear for him is more of a, a reverence. It's more of a... a you know, respect, a great respect for him, especially knowing that he made the universe. He's still our father, though, so it's, it's, you kind of have to rectify those two things. But fear is not always a bad thing. The parent who has, usually a little boy, who has no fear, they'll make many trips to the emergency room. It's very healthy for a child to have a little bit of a fear of something, sharp objects maybe, heights, you know, uh, abandoned buildings. That's kind of good. You know, the, the parent who has a, just a wild kid who has no fear is their worst nightmare, you know? Um, two, fear. A rookie police officer will stay alive for the first few years after coming out of the police academy because of fear. He'll wear his vest. 
He'll study the policies and procedures. He'll be proficient with his firearms. Until he gains a working knowledge of being a cop, that fear will keep him alive for those first three years. It will make him do everything right. Conversely, complacency or fearlessness of an officer can and often does kill him. It's just another burglar alarm. I've, I've, I've checked a thousand of them. They're always a first false alarm. It's just another domestic. It's just another car stop. So you see fear can be a good thing. The wise person has a, a healthy fear of the afterlife. What's going to happen to me after I die? That's wise. This will often lead him on a quest to find salvation and eternal security. It's the fool who has no regard for the afterlife. This is the person that feels that they're guaranteed another breath of air. They're guaranteed to wake up the next morning and have another day of life. That's the foolish person. Uh, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and correction. And Luke 12, 4 through 5, Jesus says this, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Now, doesn't that go back to meaning that God is just waiting for us to mess up so he can throw us into hell? Absolutely not. The Bible also says, when he talks about people who are going to go to hell, he says, you can go to the place of, of hell, which was originally prepared for the, for the devil and those that rebelled against God. It wasn't meant for us. It was meant, meant for the rebellious angels who left their habitation. So, the bottom line is that the one who is in rebellion needs to be terrified. And hopefully that will lead them to the saving knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. It will lead them to being saved. The one who has accepted the olive branch that God has given us in the form of the cross no longer needs to be terrified, but what's left is an awe-inspiring reverence. Verse 51 through 53. It says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. There's two groups of people here, the proud, the mighty, and the rich, and then the other group is the lowly and the hungry. God has always championed the poor, the widows, and the orphans. If you look in the Old Testament, the law of the gleaning, the jubilee year, uh, you know, all, the, all the laws that God set up, it was so that there wouldn't be a, a class system of, of the low, low who could never get out of their, their situation. God has always provided for them so that that wouldn't happen. He's even provided a plan where they could erase their debts after so many years. Uh, in the book of James, he tells us basically, don't even be religious if you're not thinking about the widows and the orphans and doing something for them. Uh, if somebody, if your neighbor is, is warm and hungry or cold and hungry and you say, be warm and fed and just leave and don't do anything about it, that's not true religion, the Bible tells us. Some of this is the future. Mary, no, Mary, knowing God's character, knows that the might makes right situation of that time will not stand forever. God will fix it. Some of this is spiritual. It's the elevation of the lowly from the low social status to, to being exalted. But it may not happen in this life. It may be the afterlife. Uh, and then the other thing she, she speaks about is the proud and the haughty. The Bible says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I want to read a scripture about in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, if you want to turn to that. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. Paul says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the, in the Lord. So... You have wise people in the world. You have even people with their knowledge can be so puffed up. Paul said that that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. They can be so smart and so they, they actually put themselves above people and they look down on people if they don't have equal intelligence. There's some incredibly smart people whose anti-God prejudice makes them foolish. I think about the whole evolution debate. There's a woman that, that we know, an older lady that's a family friend of ours, and she's a science teacher in the public schools, and she's an evolutionist. And we talk, well, of course, friendly, because we, you know, we still go to her house, and she still comes to ours. So it's, it's a, you know, if you can't do it in, in love, don't do it at all. If you find yourself being overcome by wanting to debate somebody into the ground, it's not the right spirit. But I remember we were talking about Origin of the Species one time, one of Doran's book, books. And um, I said to her, are you aware that Darwin felt that men were superior to women and that whites were superior to blacks? And she kind of looked at me and was taken aback like, oh, you saw that. And then she tried to say how that didn't, you know, she was trying to say, well, it was just a theory. Exactly. It's just a theory. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but race is, is based on the premise that whites and Asians evolved at a far faster rate than blacks and indigenous peoples. This premise Hitler used in the 1930s to brainwash the German people into believing that the Jews were undermenschen or subhuman. I saw the propaganda films. It was Darwinianism written all over it. And that was so that he could institute his final solution. This stuff is damaging people. We just kind of like, eh, it's just evolution. This is damaging. They actually, um, in the Bronx Zoo many years ago, they put an African pygmy, a dwarf, in a, in a cage with, with an orangutan, there was a book written about this, because it's that same Darwinianism to think that people who were tribal people are, are, are less humans and they didn't evolve as quickly as we do. That's terrible. Uh, you know, I, I don't always come here up at this pulpit to make people feel warm and fuzzy. There are some insidious, evil things out there that you need to know about and not take lightly. Um, and unfortunately, some of this garbage has crept into the church. Many churches over the years have looked down upon what they called interracial dating. Well, that's assuming that we have different races, but we don't. According to God, we're all here in the same family. 
Some churches have, even today, religious leaders. They think they become so high and they can just say whatever they want without repercussions. Some religious leaders today even say that Genesis is not literal, it's a fairy tale, and that evolution could have played a part in Genesis. Well, there's a, we have a problem with that, because both Christ and Paul reference Adam and Genesis, as Adam as a historical person and Genesis as fact. So if, if we could negate Genesis, we negate Paul's words and Christ's words, we negate the entire New Testament, and we're wasting our time here. We might as well just go out there and start eating, because there's nothing better to do. But, <laughs> but the Bible says when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and not before. So you can't rectify the creation story, the creation fact, with Darwinianism, because the assumption is made that sea slime became a fish, became an amphibian, all the way up to a monkey, and then Adam. This is, this is the theory, that it evolved all the way up to Adam, the first man. Well, the problem with that is, if sin didn't enter the world, or death didn't enter the world until sin, until Adam and Eve sinned, then nothing should have died before them. Death is death. Everything should have lived. But that's not what Darwinianism says. So just be, be careful of these, um, these theories and, and to try to rectify the Bible with uh, spurious uh, theories. Interesting, too, is I was talking to a friend of mine at work who fancies himself as somebody very intelligent. And he says, well, what about those transitional men? And we spoke. You could Google these things. Uh, I'm not trying to make a funny word. Google. You never hear to Google? <laughs> not Google. Google. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you look at or study the different transitional people, which have to be there for Darwinianism to work, Number one, Piltdown Man was a hoax. It was an obvious fabrication. Lucy, the first transitional female, turned out to be an ape. Ramapithecus turned out to be an orangutan. And Nebraska Man, this is a great one. Nebraska Man, they found a tooth. And they said, well, based on the size of this tooth, we're going to make a lower jaw. Based on the size of the lower jaw, we're going to make a skull. Based on the size of the skull, we're going to make a body. This all came from a, a tooth. Do you know that later on they found that it was a pig's tooth? But um, this is a situation where evolution made a monkey out of men. But scientists are brilliant. Look, these guys know far more than I do. Uh, I certainly could glean off some of these men in their knowledge. But, and I'm not, I'm not saying they're stupid men. They're brilliant men. But what I'm saying is their anti-God prejudice has blinded them and made them look foolish. And that's what the Bible talks about. You know, he uses the foolish things to, to, to beat the wise, right? Look, I'm up here. <laughs> But comparing the Lord's race to the world's race, the world's race is we hopelessly evolve from nothing. There's no God. And we, when we die, we just cease to exist. All we can hope for in this life is to have hopefully evolved from a superior race and enjoy everything while we're here. That's, that's the theory. But basically, look at the school systems. No God. Can't have God. Can't have the Ten Commandments because that's, there's religious overtones to that. Or in a courtroom. Imagine in a courtroom, God forbid, it says don't steal, don't murder. Can't have that because of religious overtones. So <laughs> you can't say that um, the kids are taught about evolution, that when they die, that's it. So why wouldn't they live for today and get everything they can? There's no accountability when they die. Might as well get everything, all the toys I can while I'm still here. And we wonder why kids bring guns to school. And we wonder why, why, why kids are, are doing drugs and, and why they have a, a sense of hopelessness. Well, it doesn't take a scientist to figure out that if you teach them this stuff, this is what the response is going to be.
And unfortunately, a lot of parents think that it's not their job to teach the kids, that everything a kid is taught, shove them off to school and let the school do it. No. Somebody, one pastor said to me, he has a one, one little girl, and I said, are you going to have another kid? He goes, we're praying about it. He says, every child is a ministry. It's true. Every child is a ministry. The Lord's race, something a little bit better to look forward to, Paul, the way Paul speaks of it is we run the race together as mankind, uh, not to be superior to one or another. We all come from the same family. We do our personal best, as in the Olympics. It's not one person wins the race and everybody else gets nothing. Um, we do our personal best, as in the Olympics, and we're graded by doing our personal best. And then when we die, we receive uh, gifts, we receive prizes in the forms of crowns that we lay back at the Lord's feet anyway because he gave us the abilities to get those crowns, achievements. And we get to hear from our Father, well done, thy good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Much better picture, isn't it? Verses 54 through 55, he says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So Mary acknowledges that God makes good on his promises. He promised the Messiah to his people, and he followed through. In closing, what are the elements of Mary's prayer? Humility, gratitude, service, personal relationship with God, praise, and trust. Oh, that the Christian would have such a triumphant prayer. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. He who comes to God must believe that he is, and it's not finished there. Because even James says the demons believe and they tremble, but they're going to hell. So what good is it just to believe in God? He who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The second part is very important because it's an attestation to his character to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's, that's God's character. It's very important that we believe that. Jesus said to pray and not lose heart. And he marveled while he was here. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? That's a good question. More specifically, we live in a country where everything's spiritual. Everybody has a spirituality. But what is true faith? What is true belief? My question is, when the Son of Man comes... Will he really find true faith in the churches of God?